Hello, this is Patrick, and it is time for Real Herbalism Radio. Real herbs, real life, real easy. Brought to you by thepracticalherbalist.com and sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, your source for high-quality, organic, bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Real Herbalism Radio. In today's fast-paced world, many of us rely on herbs to regain balance. Herbal Nervines offer herbalists a natural path to just that. Today we're talking with Howie Brownstein of Columbine School of Botanical Studies about herbs for the nervous system. Welcome, Howie. Why, thank you, Sue. And thank you, Candace, for having me here in the studio today. Very elaborately decorated uh, studio. Yes. Hey, are you guys making fun of my kitchen? Uh, yes. <laughs> so I wanted to talk today a little bit of herb, about herbal nervines. There's so many different definitions for what a nervine is in the herbal world. Can you maybe enlighten me, Howie? Because I think we talked beforehand. I liked your definition. Well, when I was trying to figure out originally back in the 80s what is a nervine, or Nervine, I looked it up in a whole bunch of different books and I couldn't come up with one answer. It seemed to be poorly defined. Uh, Nervines seem to be calming herbs, herbs that calm your mind or calm your emotions, tranquilizers, muscle relaxants, antispasmodics that relieve spasms of muscles. Mm -hmm. But some people define Nervines as calming herbs that were nutritive, uh, something that relaxed you but also nourished your nervous system. And there's a few herbs that do that. And then when I looked even more, I realized that uh, many people define nervines as herbs that affect the nervous system, which would then include stimulating herbs like coffee, tea, right. ephedra, along with plants like skullcap and valerian and passionflower that relax. Mm-hmm. So I suggest to my students that they ask for the teacher's definition that they're studying with or look in the glossary of the book they're reading to figure out what the nerving definition is. What it actually means. For and them, for you, yeah. when you're teaching, what do you, what do you use for your definition? In, in the 80s and 90s, I used the definition that a nerving was uh, a calming herb that was also a tonic. A calming herb, it also strengthened the system or the organ, in this case... Uh, the nervous system, which limited it to just a few herbs. And my favorite would be skullcap um, and wild oats, which I consider to be tonic long-term, having some building effect. Uh, But as the years went by, I switched that and changed my definition to be any herb that's calming to your nervous system. So coffee is out. Uh, I don't consider coffee to be a nervine unless I'm talking to somebody who considers coffee to be a nervine. Because the coffee makes them mellower? They're one of those people that question that way? Some people, caffeine is stimulating to the nervous system Mm -hmm. in general. And Mm -hmm. in in Europe and in many places, the term nervine is going to include stimulants. Mm -hmm. Right. So if a person starts talking about nervines and includes stimulants into that, I switch my definition to theirs so I can talk to them. Makes sense. Are you adding adaptogens to that? 
In general, I split adaptogens out Mm -hmm. because I see adaptogens as not necessarily calming or even stimulating to the nervous system. They work on many different pathways. They're just fortifying. Uh, My personal definition of adaptogens Mm -hmm. is it changes your body's ability to handle stress. It changes how much stress that you can have before the stress symptoms start to happen. In other words, let's say you're walking down the street and a, a, a trash can falls behind you, okay, and you were to jump, scared, mm-hmm. startled, okay, mm-hmm. then you take an adaptogen and you walk down the street and the uh, trash can falls and you just turn around and look at it. There's mm-hmm. a thermostat somewhere mm-hmm. in your body that says how much stress can you handle before your stress response kicks in. I see adaptogens as working with that particular pathway. Then how and do you distinguish from that and a tonic, a nerve and tonic? Because I think of tonics as being that kind of fortifying, and and there's a there's a bl- a blend to me between some of the tonics and some of the adaptogens. Mm-hmm. There's a blend. You have to, we have to remember that. These are loose terms, mm-hmm. and just like when we talked about nervines, and I gave you three definitions, uh, adaptogen is a relatively new term, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which also has many definitions. And if you keep the definitions wide, then you can start including a lot of different herbs. You lose, how do I put it? Like the term alternative, uh, if we. If you take the term alternative and you have the term too wide... It's meaningless. It starts to include all foods and all herbs. And herbalists will argue what the definition of alternative is and argue what plants may or may not be involved as as an alternative. But if you ask herbalists, give me five major alternatives that show what an alternative is, most herbalists will come up with the same five. Mm-hmm. Everyone right. agrees that these five really typify alternatives. And people can agree that these plants these plants are nervines, and people can agree that these major plants are all uh, adaptogens. And the wider we make our definitions, uh, the less clear what this term means. Mm-hmm. Um, also, what's confusing is that plants aren't just one right. class. Right. So yeah. you can get an herb that's an adaptogen that may also be soothing to your soothing to your nervous system, but some adaptogens are working on different levels. Right. They're not really working directly to the nervous system. They might be stimulating to the nervous system. That's what the person needs to resist stress is to have a slightly more stimulated nervous system. Or so, so I don't consider all adaptogens necessarily to be tonic. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, yeah, there's some blurry lines. But we're as humans making those definitions anyway. So, of course, yeah. there would be. Plants, yeah, uh, of course. Plants just don't fit into little boxes like yep. people. Yep. But you did say oh, that. <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> no, that's, that's, no, excuse me. Plants just don't fit into little boxes like elements in the periodic chart. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You said that there are typically, when you talk about any particular um, herbal action or word definition, there's usually going to be a set of herbs that people pretty much agree on. 
For herbal nervines, I'm sure that skullcap's going to show up in there. What else would be some of the ones that are pretty much everybody, no matter what their definition, will say, oh, yeah, this group is definitely nervine? Skullcap? Yeah. Valerian? Passionflower? Some? Right there? Uh, oats? Those are some, some of the big ones we give away at clinic all the time. Yeah. Wood, wood betony? Stakies? Mm-hmm. Ooh. What was the second one? Betony? Oh, okay. Wood betony, yeah. Wood betony, yeah. People would put the pedicularis in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. What about lemon balm? Sure. We put lemon balm in there. Yeah, that's one of those. Oh, it now, go, it's so good for just about everything. What you know, is it about of all of these? What are the qualities that all of these particular herbs share, or what are they used for? I mean, can you they start all at the top? Start with valerian and work our way down? Sure. Start at wherever you want to start. Well, <laughs> uh, let's start with it. Nervines in general, as a whole, what binds all these plants together in general to me mm-hmm. is that they have a physical and an emotional effect at calming the body. Some herbs seem to be more calming emotions and mental states. Some herbs seem to be more calming the physical aspects, antispasmodics that relax muscle tension. Right, like lavender does that, but would it be a nervine too then? Many people do put lavender in the nervine or nervine uh, category because it does that. Or motherwort. Motherwort, certainly, Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Uh, So it's hard to separate out the physical and the emotional levels. If you calm your (laughs) mind, your body relaxes. If you calm your body, your mind relaxes. They're intertwined, but some herbs do seem to be more one toward or towards the other. I think of emotional uses like just in general stress, mm-hmm. anxiety, mm-hmm. Uh, frenzied days, like when you're ru- running yeah. around in a frenzied days. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're having your days really frenzied and so you have a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Circular thoughts that go round and round in your head. I love skullcap for that. Keep coming back yeah. to <laughs> Yeah, passion flower for when people are just they're churning those thoughts out at night. Mm-hmm. Passion flower seems to be specifically good for that kind of thing. And it's also helpful for children, mm-hmm. which I've noticed. What about PTSD? What kind of what are your favorite herbs for nervines as for treating PTSD? Well, I when I think about something like PTSD or depression, mm-hmm. there's a two um, I think the next levels up, mm-hmm. I would say, from from just circular thoughts and uh, depression, like being depressed because someone died, mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. head's gone, grief, uh, yeah. you lost your job or your house, this kind of grief, or or being having having a depressing day. Those types of things are different than PTSD, substantial PTSD, mm-hmm. or clinical depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you've had a bad day or a bad month and you, it, it, if you go through a big loss if you go through a major change depression is pretty standard way of dealing with it and working mm-hmm. through it so if you if you're going through grief um, you can take a pill that will completely make it so that you don't feel it whatsoever right, right? You can but take then it doesn't do its job and then, so you yeah. get stuck and then when you stop the pill, you still have the grief. Right. So it's 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 quite difficult to you still have to deal with it. But mm-hmm. if you take a, a 
nerving, then it's going to keep your body calmer. You're not going to shake as much. You're not going to have the racing heartbeat. You're just going to help with the circular thoughts. The object here is to take the skullcap, the passion flower, the valerian, the herb, the nerving that's for you, so that you can take the edge off so you can still eat and you can still sleep. Mm-hmm. You can still take care of your body and you can process this. You can slow down the physical effects that the stress is the grief is causing you so that you can process it and then heal from it and grow with it. That's why I call it good grief instead of just grief. Whereas if you're talking about PTSD or clinical depression, Mm -hmm. if you're depressed and your circular thoughts about how things are not working or how life isn't going good for you in this particular time of your life, a calming herb can prevent the stress. But if your clinic can prevent the effects of stress on your body, can help slow it down some. But if you're lying in bed and seeing no reason to get out of bed until the cigarettes just burn your fingertips, mm-hmm. then uh, a calming herb may not be indicated at all. Right. It right. might be used as part of a comprehensive program, but that's, once again, beyond the one herb. Yeah. And with PTSD... Um, I, I haven't worked much with it, but people with um, some stronger PTSD, I see calming herb as a piece of a more comprehensive program rather than right. a cure-all. Whereas going to the family for Christmas, <laughs> <laughs> the calming herb works really well. Right. Yeah, when you look at clinical depression, PTSD, and those longer-standing, more chronic conditions, I don't think... A single herb, or even really a small number of them, it's it's a bigger mm-hmm. it's a bigger problem. Yeah. And you're probably going to be needing therapy and other things, other therapies beyond herbalism in conjunction with yeah. the herbalism. The PTSD that we deal with at the Occupy Street Clinic, mm-hmm. there it's not just I I'm laying awake at night. It's you know I'm a, I'm a vet. Um, yeah, they're probably I've got a missing body part. Things. I I can't yeah. sleep on the streets without getting roused <laughs> by the police. I haven't eaten a full meal in several days. Um, the water shut off downtown, so I haven't been able to get access to clean water. So I'm drinking out of a, a fountain. Mm-hmm. No, that's I yeah. haven't been able to shower. There's a lot of things to treat yeah. in that. Uh, that being said, yeah, giving them a couple of. Um, herbs can help. Herbs yeah. and then mm-hmm. some, some vitamins and giving them places where they can go to to sleep or get food or a variety of different things. Veteran services in town, there's a, it's huge. Right. But <laughs> there's those nervines that play a key part in it and right. giving the right one to the right person. Right. Yeah. How about for like hormonal depression, like adolescents or people with PMS or going through the perimenopausal to menopausal transitions? Mm. Uh, men who are in that same time frame, I've heard, also can find themselves in bouts of depression where they look around and they say, life itself isn't so bad, yet here I am depressed and I'm having a hard time just getting up and moving in the morning. But this isn't a full-blown clinical depression. I don't have... You know, it's story of woe. It's the blues, the blues. that mm-hmm. never seem to lift. Yes, the which, blues. Yeah. Yes, I, I think nervines are good for the blues. Yes, yeah. I would agree with you. Once again, it's it's calm, a calm, relaxed feeling. Mm-hmm. That is that what happens when you take a calming herb or a nervine in general. You get right. a calm, relaxed feeling. Uh, I don't usually see them as like mood lifters in general it has a tendency how do I put it 
people often ask me about the dosing of a lot of these calming herbs. And if you take a lot of a valerian or a skullcap, you'll feel drugged if you take enough of it. And you'll feel sleepy. And it's also good for insomnia. But the right amount to take is enough that relaxes you so that you stop thinking circular thoughts that you keep coming back to again and again. You stop this infatuation you have with this one thought, and then you relax, your muscles relax, and then you fall asleep because you're tired. And then your body has a chance to rebuild itself. Right. But if you took the same amount, if you took this small amount of the passion flower in the day, if you weren't tired, it wouldn't knock you out. We want this lower right. dosage. So rather a lower than lower dosage being what? It depends Six on your drops or uh, uh, my standard dosages of tinctures. Mm-hmm. It's usually two to four squirts as needed. Oh, full drop of full, 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 full. Well, you yeah. can get in one squeeze. As right. Yes. Yeah, right. But if it makes you drowsy or if you feel drug from it, you, you take less. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people are more sensitive to different herbs. Some people can do it with just a few drops. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so an example that I would think about this is a person who was very upset. They were like really talking really loud. They were talking really fast. They were like, oh, I'm just like so upset about this and that and this. And I got mm-hmm. them to take some skull capillary tincture. And they started to slow down. They started to talk slower. They started to breathe. They started to relax. And they kept talking about how bad it tasted and how it didn't really work. And a few minutes later, they were talking slowly and they weren't mm-hmm. shouting, but they were still upset. Right. Mm-hmm. And But they were calm and they said the herb didn't work. Right. Right. That's the right dosage. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you and stop. that's the point at which they can start to say, okay, well, regardless of whether the herb worked now, now I've got an energy level I can do something about what's yeah. making me upset mm-hmm. rationally instead of being overly dramatic and causing trouble. Have you used <laughs> valerian flowers as well as the writ? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and what's your experience with the flowers? I Other think. than it tastes a lot better. I hey, think. I love Valerian. I'm I so glad. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that I have experienced what Sue says about the taste of the dirty sock. Oh yeah, so many people say that. Like, I get I that, it. so I know that it's not mm-hmm. right for me. But mm-hmm. she loves it, so mm-hmm. it's got to be right for her. <laughs> well, fresh Valerian flowers. Okay. Well, first of all, if you get the Valerian before it dries, it has a completely different smell. It's very uh, musky, and a lot mm-hmm. of people are attracted to that fresh smell. It changes completely when it's dried. Mm-hmm. Dirty, the dirty sock factor. Yeah, that's what Susan Musky. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But so the fresh stuff has the more dirty sock factor. No, much less. less. Okay. It's very, very pleasant, actually. Yeah. Aromatic musky smell. Yeah. It's only after it dries it gets that kind of cat pee like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I made some tincture from dry recently because I finally ran out of what I had of fresh. Yes. And I really need to find someone with valerian roots so I can get some fresh next fall. I'm growing some. I'd be happy to give oh, you some good. transplants. That'd be awesome. I put it right in the front because it's so tall and the flowers are so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you walk by and it, it, it smells, smells heavenly. Wonderful. Yeah. So it's by the Daphne. When the Daphne's done, we got a little bit of space and then the, the valerian comes up. And nice. it's that same... You're walking into my house with this calmness, which you'll need nice. when you get to the circus that is my home. Yes. <laughs> well, I've, I think that valerian flowers are very mild compared mm-hmm. to the roots. And if you're going to use the valerian flowers as, as a tea or some kind of preparation, I would consider it more along the lines of uh, a light 
chamomile tea. Mm, it's a very that? mild, calming herb, and I wouldn't, uh, unless the person's very affected by it, or I, I consider it extremely mild, not under replacement, but mm-hmm. maybe something for more for children. Nursing, yeah, the children. experience that um, I always go back to is, okay, you don't like the taste of valerian, but you like the effect, and you're nursing. Mm-hmm. Then why don't you make a sun tea with the valerian flowers and some mm-hmm. rose petals and yeah. a couple of things like that. And so she drank that, and then she had a baby that was flopped in her lap, and she woke up with drool hanging out of her mouth, like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, wow. Yes. That, I mean, because she, she was in that state being yeah. nursing that it affected yeah. her very nicely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the best use of valerian flowers, I think, is uh, you take the flowers and you cut them to make a nice bouquet, and then you give them to somebody that you're pretending to like, and then they put it mm-hmm. on their countertop, and the flowers all fall off, and they go behind the counter, and then they start to smell like happy. Mm. Ah. That is a great trick. <laughs> yes. You yes. two are both two peas in a pod. Got <laughs> that little bit of coyote there. Yeah. Come watch out. If you come bearing valerian, I'm just not even going to open the door. he'll figure out a way yeah yeah what about um some of these other herbs that people have you like the milky oats you talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit and some people they are given oat straw Mm -hmm. and some people milky oats i think there's a difference between oat straw and milky oats Mm -hmm. oat straw is the straw from the oats it's after the tops have been taken off and i I, I consider that, if you're going to use that to me, I feel like it's more a mineral content, mineral-rich mm-hmm. herb. The milky oats, uh, the tops of, as opposed to the stems. Mm-hmm. Oats draws the stems. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, the milky oats are going to be the tops while they're fresh and still milky. I consider that nutritive. In other mm-hmm. words, okay. the long-term, same with skullcap, lower dosage long-term if you go to a half a dropper or a dropper a day or over a period of time, over weeks and months, mm-hmm. you see a more tonic effect because mm-hmm. of nutritive and building. That's the way I look at it. So you can use valerian and you can use passion flower for someone who has a problem. And then when you take away the skullcap or the passion flower, the problem comes back mm-hmm. unless they deal with it some other way. But when you, if you're looking at skullcap or or wild oats, uh, the more nutritive uh, nerving tonics, then you're looking at being able to put that in a formula long-term right. to help somebody, yeah. yes. And, and then it, when you're eventually done with that formula, it doesn't come back. The problems don't come ideally, back. Ideally, that's yeah. the case, yes. Yeah. I like what you're saying there. Uh, um, it, you're using the herbs as a tool to help solve the problem, not right. just mm-hmm. not just disguise the symptoms, Right. Not just, you know, let's just give me some time, but it's really, it's one of the tools to solve the underlying problem. And I think that's one of the things that we don't have in allopathic medicine that clinical herbalism can offer to medicine and does offer to medicine. So if we're not only just the idea that allopathic medicine, they're giving a pill and, you know, you can have all of these side effects, but with the herbs, the one of the terrible things is you might get some good nutrition with it and you know i mean it's yeah. it, it's just a it's a bigger uh a bigger medicine that you're getting with herbs in my mind yeah so how do you how do you make your assessments with nervines when you're looking at a patient and and you just let, do you just kind of uh, spend a lot of time talking with them or 
do you feel well, it out or which you're saying which nerving herb yeah, do yeah. I give? Which one? Yeah, do you just decide they're well, all great? It, I would say that for someone who's just learning nervines, mm-hmm. the way to do it would be to pick one nerving that you feel attracted to and use that one mm-hmm. and get to learn that run one really well. Mm-hmm. Once you've really learned that one just by itself, then you can expand to other nervines and start to see which ones are different and, and which ones are best for one or the other. Mm-hmm. Great. Wow. Well, thank you, Howie. That was very helpful. You can find out more about Howie Brownstein and his school at at www.botanicalstudies.net. For more information, links, and resources about nervines we mentioned on this program, including the Columbine School of Botanical Studies, check out our show notes on realherbalismradio.com. You can find recipes, how-tos, and more detailed information on the topics we discussed on The Practical Herbalism thepracticalherbalist.com Now it's time for Herbalism and Homesteading News. Today I'd like to talk about an article that was published in The Salt, which is the public radio's, National Public Radio's blog on food and what's on your plate. The article is called Feeding Babies Foods with Peanuts Appears to Prevent Allergies by Rob Stein. It was published in February of 2015. I'd like to talk about kids' allergies and the craziness of it all. Yeah. When I heard that on the radio, my response was, oh, thank God. Finally, finally, you know, people are getting that good information because we had a dietary McCarthyism out there about peanuts and allergens and kids raised in these plastic bubbles that suddenly developed into extremely sensitive children. And it's, you know, it's not just uh, you and I observing. This is a national trend. Yeah, I put blinders on when my son was born, and I stopped reading the parenting magazines. I read them (laughs) for the nine months previous, but I knew... The day that child was born, I wasn't going to read another one because they were filled with stories that were downright terrifying yeah. as a parent, especially in that hormonal craze that you're in. And it was our first, oh, my God. And you wonder, you question everything you do at that mm-hmm. point. And I just thought, oh, God, I've got to just go with my instincts here because this is insane. Well, it makes you wonder how the human race has survived <laughs> right. many, many millennia, the way they, the articles are written. Well, the way right. some children behave, it's, you wonder how they survived to adulthood anyway. Right. But <laughs> add to that, you know, right. the fear, of, here all of a sudden you have this huge responsibility and parents are naturally, they want to do the right thing and they're not really sure and, and the thing that their child is doing, they didn't know that children could scream all night when, oh, what have I done wrong? My neighbor doesn't have a child that screams all night. No, you always think, what's wrong yeah. with me as a parent? What am I doing wrong? Right. You want to do the right thing. And then right. all of these sensationalist articles come flying out. And I understand why parents are, are trying very hard to protect their children from these dangers, but I don't think they're really dangers. And we're turning right. them into dangers. The yeah. uh, You know, one of the things that... We've noticed here is allergic disease is skyrocketing. Now they're estimating as many as one in five Americans have an allergic condition. 
That is outrageous. So twenty percent of the population yes. has an allergic reaction. That's right. huge. That's yeah, enormous. And allergies to foods are pretty scary. I mean, they can range anything from some mild stomach ache to you know death. Yeah, it's a frightening thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're creating that by not feeding our kids foods normally, I mean, it just well, what the article is really saying is that it's not that we may not introduce peanuts, for instance, uh, to our children at you know, 18, 24 months old. Mm-hmm. But what the article is saying is we should be actually doing that at four to six months old mm-hmm. and doing it in such a way that you know, not giving them a whole peanut butter sandwich, but maybe you know, four teaspoons a week. Doing it during pregnancy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even then, you know. Um, yeah, I've got to admit that all these foods that I have since heard are hideous and terrible, and you shouldn't eat them while you're breastfeeding. I mean, I was eating shrimp and and well, soft not that much, cheeses. but soft cheeses. Mm-hmm. Oh God, the blue cheeses, the stuff that's got all the hideous stuff that even I'm allergic to. Yet I was still eating it. Uh-huh. Do you think the people in France yeah. aren't eating cheese? I'm sorry, right, right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, and peanuts, peanuts. I mean, there were weeks when all I could get my baby to eat was peanut butter sandwiches. He would not eat anything else. It drove me crazy. Right. You know, but we would go through these stints. That's how it was. Yeah. And I just figured. I shrugged my shoulders and said, "Well, it's what he's eating. He's fine." You yeah. Know. My daughter was allergic to tomatoes I grow tomatoes in the garden and she go there and eat them one after another and get this huge rash on her face and you know there's no stopping her right, can, there's right. no stopping her yeah. and now there's she's not allergic no to tomatoes no no mind to it so. so I just figured well eventually she'll get used to it no yeah. we don't really have tomato allergy problems in our family so she'll get used to it eventually and yeah she is right she has not however gotten used to milk. She still right. will try cheese and enjoy cheese, and it will make her quite ill afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> there are some allergies yeah. that you don't get used to. You right. just She did not inherit the genetic disposition for digesting lactose. She simply didn't get that one. Right. And right. no amount of cheese and milk eating is ever going to change that. But the other but it's are environmental, <laughs> and they do yeah. describe in the medical field, when you're born, kids normally have what they call the TH2 Response what in which that? that's when you're you you respond to everything. You're just responding, and you're developing your immune system, okay. etc. Kind and of like building a skin. Acculturation is what we're doing. Yeah. Your body is getting used to the environment that you're in. For right. instance, if you're like for me, allergic to coconut, I came from a coconut-free environment. There right. was no reason for me to build any enzymes in order to react appropriately to coconut. Right. And so, so now your body's now, done with that phase and, and I, ever I'm be allergic okay to with coconut. Yeah, I am allergic to coconut. Which so. is very sad. I always feel sad for you on that. Am I am I God. sad horrible coconut life? Is so well see you're one of the twenty percent, right? I'm one yeah. of the twenty percent. I'm one of the problems. So you know, I'm speaking from experience. But uh, people from developing comp- companies, countries, they have uh, larger families, they often are in rural settings. Uh, they have um, a microbial exposure. They're not living in sanitary conditions. They're not living in the urban lifestyle. They they are exposed to a lot more things. So their bodies are working really hard in order to assimilate to the background and the environment that they're in. And especially if you've got older siblings. Older siblings, speaking as an older sibling, <laughs> really great at feeding terrible things to younger great, siblings. Great at spreading That's, plagues to the small yes, ones. Yeah, yes, yeah, we get the horrible diseases. We and all then, did that. All three of us did that. Yeah. Spread plague to our younger siblings. And they survived. Yeah, and the antibiotic use, I also <clears throat> want to throw that one in there. In the developing com- countries, they have low antibiotic use. And in right. the 
countries such as our our own, we have the feedlots and the animals that we eat are getting a huge amount of antibiotics. So it's in our system and that disrupts our digestive flora as well. Not to mention that our medical system is very quick when you have a young one to jump to antibiotics for things like thrush instead of choosing more natural cures that would allow balance. That's very true. However, the most amount of the antibiotics that we as human beings, as Americans, get, it's mm-hmm. from our food. Right, and our water supply. And City our water, water supply, supply has Correct. a shocking amount of antibiotics. Because it's draining right off the feedlots. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sadly. So yeah. what we're really saying is, from this article, is that it is time to reverse um, some of the training that, that parents are getting, which is to feed um, your infants, in this case peanuts, mm-hmm. at an earlier age, to uh, develop the immune mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just saying that. I'm just saying that's also what the, um, the Academy of Pediatrics has revised their recommendations in 2008 to do that same thing, but no one ever heard about that. Mm-hmm. You know? so right. even, even, that didn't make yeah, the big news. Yeah, seven years ago they said, yeah, you shouldn't like wait, go ahead and introduce it. And yeah, no don't one, shelter your kids yeah, as No much. one said anything about yeah. that, but on this article, you know, now they're saying it again and with these new uh, tests and new ways of looking at it. So, um, so as parents and grandparents and aunties, we can help all the younger generation and the new parents to recognize that being afraid of foods is not a wise choice for right. babies. Exposure, exposure yeah. your children to lots of different things, small you know, amounts. Yeah, whether bit, it's whether it's food and stop. And this is my own personal soapbox. Stop with the antimicrobial soaps. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yeah. Oh my God, stop with that. And then you know your baby's okay to eat dirt. It's yeah. okay. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. In fact, kids, babies that are raised in homes with pets like cats and dogs tend to have fewer allergies than mm-hmm. those who are not. So, you know, let them play in the dirt with the chickens and the dogs. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, let them do it. Okay. Yeah. I might draw the line with chickens. I don't know about these. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. And there are children out there that yeah. are very fragile and they do have yes, very severe medical needs. Clearly, those are the exception, those. but it is a mistake to assume that. Every time you see an exception to the rule, that that applies to you. Right. right. That is yeah. a mistake. Yeah, look at your family history. Look at your genetic history as best you can. Mm-hmm. Be reasonable. Be sensible. Be practical. Be practical. Correct. As always. But, yeah, expose them to as much as you think you can when they're really little. Yeah. Be rational, not fear-based. Herbalism 101. This is part of the show where Sue and Candace answer a listener question or teach you about an herbal definition or term covering basic to advanced herbal knowledge. If you would like the dirt on herbs, herbalism, or anything else related, you can send your question using our simple contact form at realherbalismradio.com slash herbalism101. If we choose your question for the show, we will send you a free PDF ebook, Natural Nutrition by the Practical Herbalist, currently available for $4.99 at the Practical Herbalist store. Here's Candace and Sue to discuss this show's Herbalism 101 topic. Hi, Sue. Today we've got a question from one of our listeners, Stephanie. She wrote to us to ask about which essential oils are safe to take internally. That is a really awesome question. That's something that uh, I've been asked in other classes before, too, so I'm glad we get to talk about that now. I know that there are different opinions about different types of companies that make essential oils. And some of the information about essential oil companies come from information that we had back in the 90s and the 80s when there are only a couple of essential oil companies out there. And now there's 
uh, it's easier to get a hold of the equipment to make your own essential oils. So there are now smaller companies, more family-owned companies that are making essential oils. And it's true that the quality can vary a great deal. However, I think that both you and I have had experience, particularly with tea tree essential oil. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of, of good ways of finding out what is a good essential oil to take and what is what is a lower quality one. Right. What really matters is the purity of the essential oil. That's what you're looking for, much more so than the brand names. Yeah. There are a lot of companies now that sell good essential oils at varying prices. You can find a great sweet orange oil at one company for five bucks for a half an ounce, and another company might charge 25 bucks for half an ounce. Mm-hmm. If the essential oil, when it comes down to it, is pure in both cases, you're in good shape. If it's not pure, it doesn't matter what the price is. You don't want to take it. Right. So my favorite test for purity is to take a white paper towel or other similar paper, coffee filter works, Mm -hmm. and put one or two drops of the essential oil on it and let it stand for as long as it takes for the essential oil to evaporate. Mm -hmm. So that's typically, depending on your how dry your climate is and that sort of thing, it'll be somewhere between half a day or so to maybe three days. When it's all dried off, and there's nothing left on there, if you have any stain or any oil deposit left over, then your oil isn't a pure essential oil. Mm -hmm. Essential oils will always evaporate completely. Right. So that's got some kind of carrier in it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And some essential oil companies, especially the expensive oils, they've been known to add oil of something else to Mm -hmm. it to... Like with rose, for example, which is extremely expensive. Exactly, yeah. So a dilution, yeah. I know from being uh, a buyer professionally Mm -hmm. with herbals, some companies, they will purchase essential oils from a whole bunch of different companies, and then Mm -hmm. they put their name on it. Yeah. And sometimes that's a really wonderful thing because you know that you've got an experienced person looking at different and sampling different types of essential oils from different companies and oftentimes they will check they'll get samples from different companies every single year and see which one is the best quality right so that you really i advise people keep checking in with your local company the one that you feel comfortable with or one that you have a good history with whether they are local to your area or not and just keep checking them for yourself but also remember that a lot they can, you can have a turnaround in staff, but the values of the company oftentimes is fairly consistent. Even if yeah. it, it can change an owner, still the values you know check it when it's still in transition. But still those values of high quality those will remain consistent. Typically, yeah. But that doesn't mean that you stop checking things. You should always be checking yeah, your tinctures. Always, yeah, it's always important to always take responsibility and. Mm-hmm. You know, after you've done the test, the first test for purity, the second one is to smell it. Mm-hmm. You know, the more that you spend time smelling essential oils from various companies, the more familiar you're going to get with what a good one will smell like. Yeah. So some oils, like lavenders, get mixed. Multiple different strains, varieties of lavender Correct. will get yep. mixed. So it's good to smell ones that you know are pure lavandula officinalis mm-hmm. and compare those with some of the others. Yeah, and harvest will change from time to time. Sometimes you'll get a lot more rain, and then they're not going to have as as uh, dense essential oils, so they have to do something in order to... Right, or the quality, the which constituents of the essential oil are stronger will change from year to year. From, yeah, and but that's okay. But as you okay. get to know and you've smelled a lot of them, you'll start to know 
you'll you're, you'll just start to know. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is a good orange, or that is a great rosemary, or that sage is not quite. It's off. It yeah. smells like they added something to it. Yeah. For the most part, I've found that over the last five or ten years, most of even the cheap oils that I buy are pretty good. Mm-hmm. I, I've been impressed with the increase I'm seeing in purity. So. Yeah, there are some oils that I think. I'm willing to spend quite a bit more for them because I'm only using a few drops at a time. Right. So if I'm buying a half ounce or a quarter ounce bottle, I might be spending a great deal for that. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I'm only using a tiny little bit, it's going to last me a long time. And the fact that it's going to last me a long time means that I need to invest quite a bit in that good quality. Right. So I'm willing to take that risk. But for some people, it's really, you know, they're buying an itty bitty little dram and and it's not going to last them that long. They might be buying a little bit more Right. next year, etc. Right. Yeah. And whether you're taking them internally or not, but especially if you're taking them internally, it is wise, I think, to go for organic when you can. Oh, absolutely. My family's budget isn't always flush. Sometimes I don't go with the organic. Mm-hmm. I hate to admit it. And who's making true. essential oils in their own home? <clears throat> exactly. You know, so yeah. you really are, for the most part, you are trusting these companies to do that work for you. Right quite honestly. So you need to be very careful about that. Right. And especially with organics, when you're relying on the soil quality and the environment in order to extract that stuff, what else would you be extracting from non-organic essential oils? Exactly. That gives me some pause, exactly. quite frankly. So uh, yeah. the other thing to remember is if you're taking internal uh, uh, essential oils, you're not taking a spoonful at a time. No. One or two drops at most per cup or so. Yeah. No, it's really, or, it's a very small amount. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll add two drops of orange, sweet orange essential oil to my latte and it'll be great. Sure. Of course, I'll then hand that to someone else because I don't drink the latte. But yeah. You can, hand, you can hand that to me. Like, oh. You can hand that to me. I do. I'll, I'll, I'll I take do. that stuff Yes. Yeah. So, and then the last thing is the material safety data sheets. Correct. Many companies will provide these if you're buying from a company that is OSHA certified. Should be then, online. Then you know that the material safety data sheet is definitely solid. Companies mm-hmm. make those materi- MSDS sheets themselves. If your company's not OSHA certified, then you have to decide whether that company is reputable and honest and has integrity and yeah. are going to be honest on their MSDS. But they have to have an MSDS, so yes. they need to supply that one. Yeah, so you should be able to get one of those. The MSDS will list all the chemical components that are in the product that you're purchasing. So mm-hmm. if, if they say it's lavandula, officinalis, essential oil, that should be the chemical that's listed there. Yep. And it will also list the place of origin. So you can look at what's the distillery that they bought it from, what's mm-hmm. the country of origin, and what was the distillation method. So that can help you make choices about which oils you feel comfortable with for internal or external use. Yep. Thank you for listening to Real Herbalism Radio. Your hosts have been Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. To find more information and recipes from today's show or to leave a comment or suggestion, visit us online at realherbalismradio.com. If you're feeling social, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thepracticalherbalist. Don't forget to look up our ebooks and herbal folios at amazon.com. Use the search terms Practical Herbalist. This show has been sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of high-quality organic bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. You can visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. If you'd like to sponsor Real Herbalism Radio, just contact us through our website at realherbalismradio.com slash contact. Until next time, this is Patrick with Real Herbalism Radio and The Practical Herbalist.